Our Father, we come to you in Jesus' name and we pray that you would grant the power of your Spirit to attend your Word, that it would enlighten us and transform us, that we would be the kind of people you desire us to be, that, Lord, you would increase our passion to bring this gospel, the only gospel that can save, to a perishing world. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, for the last several weeks, we have been studying Romans chapter 1, verses 18 to 32. And today we're going to finish that series of studies. This section, this last half of chapter 1 in the book of Romans, is a section that deals with the wrath of God. That's its main subject. That's what it starts out with in verse 18. It says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Now, the wrath of God is God's settled indignation against sin. It's God's hatred and detestation against all moral evil. It's God reacting against that which is opposed to his holy nature. And verse 18 says that God's wrath is presently being revealed. You notice it's in the present tense. It's not talking about something that's going to happen. It is being revealed currently. And we also know that the wrath of God is revealed against a certain kind of individual. It's against all ungodliness and all unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Now, last Sunday, we took a look at four different reasons why God pours out his wrath. People knew the truth about God. People suppressed the truth about God. People refused to honor God. And people chose idols over God. That's the main crux of verses 18 to 23. There's this downward spiraling effect. They know the truth about God because of creation. Within the very heart of hearts of every individual, whether they would admit it or not, whether they sub consciously realize it or not. There is an inner knowing that there must be a creator. You can tell that by looking at the creation around you. But rather than delighting in the fact that there is a creator and honoring him and thanking him, they suppress the truth. It means they hold it down because they don't really want to have to be accountable to a creator. They want to be their own God. And not only that, they chose idols over God. They don't want to honor this God. They don't want to thank him. And so they exchange him for something of worthless value and worship and serve it. Now this morning, we've looked at the, the reasons for God's wrath. This morning, we're going to look at the results of God's wrath. When God exercises his wrath against a people, what are the results? What takes place? Well, that's verses 24 to 32. This tells us what it looks like in a society or a nation or a people group when God begins to exercise judgment upon that people group. If we were to summarize verses 24 to 32, I think we could do it if we distilled it down to this short little sentence. Here it is. When man abandons God, God abandons man. That's what these verses are teaching. When we abandon God... God abandons us. Now let's take those two statements. First of all, 
man abandons God. Let's take a look at that. And then let's take a look at the second part of that statement. Let's take a look at God abandoning man from this, this passage. First of all, man abandons God. You Notice that Paul says the same thing in three different ways. He tells us that man abandons God in verse 23, 25, and 28. Verse 23, he says, well, let's start in 22. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. They took God and they exchanged him and said, I'd rather have this over here. There was an exchange. Verse 25, For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Again, they're exchanging the truth of God for a lie. They're exchanging the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man. And then the last one is in verse 28. Just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer. So what are they doing? They're kicking God out. They're trading him in for something they would rather have. They don't even see fit to acknowledge him, that he even exists or that he has anything to do with their lives. They want to live their own lives. They want to be their own God. They want to pursue their own pleasures. And they want nothing to do with the God that will tell them what they must do and how they must live. And so they're exchanging him and they're refusing to acknowledge him. They will not give thanks. They will not worship and serve him. This is sort of an anti-God movement. Now, they won't admit that, right? No one admits that because everyone knows it's wrong to do that. But in their heart of hearts, they, if deep down they know they're not pursuing God with all their heart. They have something else that's come into their life that's taken his place. And I want you to see that in verse 23, 25, and 28, there is a connection between man abandoning God and then God's abandoning them. Man abandons God first, and God responds by abandoning man. And I want to show you that. Verse 23, we've already read it, but then it says in verse 24, Therefore God gave them over and the less of their hearts to impurity, so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. Do you see the, the cause and effect? They exchange God for an image in the form of corruptible man, and God says, okay, therefore, if you do that, therefore, I'll just give you over. Verse 25, they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. They worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who's blessed forever, amen. For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions, cause and effect. Or again in verse 28, just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind. You see, God is responding to man's abandoning him. And he says, okay, if you want to abandon me, I too can play at that game, I guess. I'm going to abandon you. So that's what's taking place. Now let's take a look a little bit more in depth at these passages that talk about man abandoning God. We took a look at verse 23 last Sunday, but basically what we saw there is that man takes a look at the most glorious being in the universe and he says, I don't want him. I'd rather have this over here. Notice how Paul puts it. The glory 
of the incorruptible God, the one who's blessed forever, this being that you can't imagine his brilliance and splendor and majesty, dazzling. And they'll just set him aside. We don't really want him. How about a, a, a few pieces of dung on the ground over there? I'd rather have that instead. You know, something like that. I'll, I'll, I'll trade in this gold bar for a rusty old bolt. I'll just exchange it. And then verse 25, notice that the word exchange is used in both verses. There's this exchange happening. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie. Now, what is the truth of God that Paul is referring to? I I think the truth of God that he's referring to is that God is glorious and is to be desired above everything else. That's the truth. They traded in that truth for a lie. What's the lie? That the creature should be preferred above the creator. And so they exchange that truth for a lie, and so they worship and serve the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. And so what man does is that he prefers something, someone, anything, to the true and living God. And all peoples, all cultures do this. The ancient Egyptian culture would worship animals like frogs and snakes. The Hindus of today will worship cows or elephants or monkeys. Uh, here in America, we worship sports heroes and our favorite sports team and our um, musical artists or our um, supermodel or some actress or actor. We, we plaster our, our, our houses and our bedrooms with pictures of the person that we idolize. Or it may not be a person, it might be power or money or position or pleasure. There's there's something that drives us that is the thing that we really serve, that we really worship. And so our deepest problem, according to the Apostle Paul, is not all of these problems that he's going to be talking about from verse 26 to 32, all these sins The deepest problem of man is not homosexuality or envy or wickedness or greed or slander or malice, all the things that he's going to mention. His deepest problem is that he doesn't, he's not rightly related to the God who made him. He doesn't worship rightly. If worship is corrected in his life, the other sin problems will disappear eventually. That's his major need. And that if, if we talk to anybody today, the lesbian, the gay person, we'll talk more about this later in this message, but really what we need to be saying is you need to come back into a right relationship with God. That's the essence. Now, verse 28, just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer. Isn't that an astounding statement? They didn't see fit to acknowledge him. In other words, God wasn't worth their time of day. <laughs> they, it, they, he just didn't seem... Uh, they, it didn't seem what's the word I'm trying to say? It didn't seem uh, reasonable to them. They did not see fit. It wasn't something that seemed right to them or rational or normal. They just would not acknowledge God. They would just live their own life and do their own thing. They're happy without him. They wanted to be their own God. And so what what we see here is that the wrath of God is the consequence of sinners abandoning God. 
Verse 18 says, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. How is God's wrath being revealed from heaven? It's being revealed from heaven in the fact that God is abandoning man. That's how. You know, you can talk about the eternal wrath of God. That's the wrath people will face in hell. But that's not the wrath we're talking about in this verse. Or you can talk about cataclysmic wrath, right? When a tsunami or a hurricane or a tornado or something and many people die, hundreds or thousands of people die. Maybe that's cataclysmic wrath, but this is not that either. This is, this is uh, wrath that abandons man to his own sin. So we've seen that man abandons God. Let's turn the tables now. Let's look at how God abandons man. This comes out in verse 24, 26, and 28. And there's this repeating phrase, God gave them over. 24, therefore God gave them over in the lusts of their hearts to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. Verse 26, for this reason God gave them over to degrading passions. Or verse 28, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper. Now we can read that and think this really looks and sounds weird to my ears. This idea of God giving, I thought God was pursuing everybody. I thought God was trying to save everybody. What does it mean God is giving people over? What's he talking about? That seems so strange to me. Well, what I want you to see is that this is not a strange idea in the Bible. It may sound strange to our American ears, but it's not strange to Scripture. This whole concept of God giving people over comes up again and again and again throughout the Scripture. Let's take a look at some of those. So the first one I want you to see is Psalm 81, verse 11 and 12. Psalm 81, verse 11 and 12. But my people did not listen to my voice, and Israel did not obey me. So I gave them over to the stubbornness of their heart to walk in their own devices. What did God give Israel over to? Their own devices their own will, their own sin, what they prefer. Remember, people prefer something over God, according to Romans 1. They exchange him for something else. God eventually says, okay, you can have what you want. If you don't want me, I'll give you what you want, and we'll see if you like like it that way. See if it turns out okay that way. There's another place we should look to, Hosea chapter 4. So go to your right. Hosea is after the major prophets. It's right after Daniel. Look at Hosea 4.17. Notice this short little sentence. Ephraim is joined to idols. Let him alone. Now that's shuddering to consider when God says, let him alone. He's joined to idols. Leave him. Let him alone. Or we can take a look at 2 Chronicles chapter 24. 2 Chronicles chapter 24, verse 20. Listen to this. Then the Spirit of God came on Zechariah, the son of Jehoiada, the priest. And he stood above the people and said to them, Thus God has said, Why do you transgress the commandments of the Lord and do not prosper? Because you have forsaken the Lord, he also has forsaken you. See the connection? 
because you first forsook the Lord, he also has forsaken you. He could have said, because you have abandoned the Lord, he has abandoned you. Same thing we have in Romans chapter 1. Or one more, the book of Acts chapter 7. Acts chapter 7, verse 41 and 42. Now here Stephen is preaching before the Sanhedrin. He's about ready to be executed, but he's giving this final speech. The Spirit of God's on him. And he says in verse 41, At that time they made a calf and brought a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. But God turned away and delivered them up to serve the host of heaven. So they served idols. God delivered them up. Same thing it says in Romans 1. God gave them over. You could translate that, delivered them up. Same thing. He delivered them up to serve idols, the host of heaven. Let's let's put our thinking caps on and try to figure out what it means for God to give somebody up or give somebody over. There are two senses in which God gives people over. There's a passive sense and there's an active sense sense. Now the passive sense simply means he takes his hands off. He takes his restraints off. It's like you taking your dog for a walk. He's on a leash and you're walking through the park and the dog spots a skunk over there in the bushes and he starts barking, barking, barking. He's tugging on the leaf and he won't let you alone. He just wants to get at that skunk. And finally you say, okay, take him off the leash and he runs into the bushes and he gets blasted by the skunk. You took, you took him off the leash and let him go. That's the passive sense. And that is uh, correct, I think, when we look at the way God gives people up. There is a passive sense. Um, but that's not the only sense. We say to God, or God says to us, you don't want me? Then let's just find out what it's like when you worship somebody else or something else. But there's an active sense too. The active sense, notice it says that God gave them over. God is doing something. God is being active here. You see that? This isn't in the passive. This isn't a passive verb. It it, it isn't that God is being acted upon. God is doing the acting. So what is God doing? He is giving them over. Now what does that mean? Well, let's just take a look in the book of Matthew And take a look at various verses in the book of Matthew that use this same Greek word. The word is paradidomai. Paradidomai, it means to deliver over or to hand over or to give over. And let's see how it's used just in the book of Matthew. I think that'll help us. So the first one's Matthew 4.12. Matthew 4.12. Now when Jesus heard that John had been taken into custody, he withdrew, he withdrew into Galilee. You say, well, that doesn't talk about giving over. Do you know what words there refer to giving them over? Taken into custody. When Jesus heard that John had been taken into custody. Those are the words. for It's the same Greek word, paradidomai. John was delivered over into custody. He was given up to custody. Okay, turn the page to chapter 5, verse 25. 
Jesus says, make friends quickly with your opponent at law while you are with him on the way, so that your opponent may not, here it comes, hand you over to the judge. And the judge hands you over to the officer, and you be thrown into prison. The Greek word paradidomai is hand you over to the judge. So, so far, this is being given up to arrest and prison. Here, it's being given up to a judge to be judged. Okay, chapter 10, verse 17. Jesus tells his disciples, But beware of men, for they will hand you over to the courts and scourge you in their synagogues. There's our word again. Hand you over to the courts. The courts are going to judge you, and they'll scourge you. They'll inflict punishment upon you. Or verse 21, Brother will betray brother to death, and father his child, and children will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death. So what word in this verse corresponds to give them up? Betray. That's the word. Brother will give them over to brother. A father will give his child over. So the word betray. And they're giving them up to what? Death. Death. Okay, Ver, uh, chapter 18 of Matthew. Here we have that famous parable of Jesus where he teaches on forgiveness. And he says, if God has forgiven you so much, then certainly you need to forgive the people that have wronged you. And he uses a parable to teach that lesson. And he sums up this whole parable in verse 34, Matthew 18, 34. It says, and his Lord moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed him. There's our word again, handed him over to the torturers. So we've got handed him over to arrest, uh, the judges, uh, death, and torturers. And we've got one more, chapter 26, verse 2. Matthew 26, verse 2. Jesus says, You know that after two days the Passover is coming and the Son of Man is to be handed over for crucifixion. So this phrase, paradidomai, often, not always, but often has the idea of being delivered over to judgment, to death, to torture, to punishment, to arrest, to prison. So when we go to Romans 1 and it says God gave them over, I believe we're probably on the right track when God is actively delivering people over to judgment. What do you think? I mean, it sounds to me like we're probably on the right track there. It's not just that he takes his hands off. There's something active that he's doing. If they reject him, then judgment's going to fall. Okay, back to Romans 1. You know, people say, if we keep going in this direction, God's going to judge America. Uh, no, God is already judging America. He's already doing it. God's wrath is already upon America. That's why we have seen the moral upheaval and reversal that we've seen in the last 30 years. Because God's wrath is upon us. And he's letting us pursue our sin. He's, he's taking the leash off. He's saying, go your own way. So what does God hand his people over to? Well, verse 24 says God 
gave them over in the lusts of their hearts to impurity. That's the first thing, impurity. The word means uncleanness or filthiness. How does God give people over to filthiness or impurity? How does he do that? It says here, in the lusts of their hearts. He allows them to follow the desires of their hearts. And when a fallen sinner is given the freedom to just pursue the desires of his fallen sinful heart, it results in filthiness of heart or impurity. That's what happens. You know, God, people say all the time, uh, I think people are just really basically good. If you could just really get to the bottom of everything. I mean, if you could get to the really see their heart, just get to the bottom of their heart. They really have a good heart deep down. Mothers will say that all the time. Their son's on Bob ready to be executed in the lecture chair. And she'll say, well, I know he did some wrong things, but if you really knew his heart, you'd see he's got a good heart underneath all that. The problem is their heart. That's the whole problem. When God allows us to pursue the desires of our heart, it results in all of these sins that we're going to read about in chapter 1. In fact, let's just do this real quick. In Matthew 15, Jesus tells us what comes out of the human heart. Let's see what he says comes out. Matthew 15, verse 17. Jesus says, Do you not understand that everything that goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is eliminated? But the things that proceed out of the mouth come from the heart, and those defile the man. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, slanders. These are the things which defile the man. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile the man. So, going back to Romans 1, the first thing that God hands people over to is impurity. He allows them to pursue the lusts of their own flesh, the lusts of their hearts, and it expresses itself and a myriad of different sinful ways, but all of those things defile them and make them filthy. Their soul is unclean before God. Secondly, degrading passions. That comes out in verse 26. For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions. What kind of passions? Degrading. What's degrading mean? Demeaning. Shameful. Unseemly. People are not evolving and getting better and better. They're getting worse and worse. They're in a downward spiral because they have severed the connection. There's no connection between them and God and they're just spiraling away into more and more sin, more and more evil. So these passions that God gives them up to are degrading. How are they degrading? Well, he gives us a very specific illustration and example of this in verse 26 and 27. And the illustration or the example that he gives of a degrading passion is homosexuality. And he goes into that at length in these verses. When Paul wants to come up with a sin that illustrates what he's trying to teach them about, he can't think of a better illustration than that of homosexuality. And so he talks about that here in these two verses. And folks, I totally get it that this is a superly, a super high-charged social and political issue today, and that if anyone speaks forcefully to one side or the other, they're going to get lambasted, especially if you speak against it. If you speak for homosexuality, you probably get a lot of praise and pats on the back. But if you dare 
to take a stand against it, you're going to have resistance. And I totally understand that. And we go on the radio and people will probably hear this and I'll probably get some hate mail. <laughs> but you know what? I just decided God has given me the solemn duty to preach the truth of the Bible. And I cannot allow the pressure of popular culture to deter me from saying what is true. We, I hope you appreciate that. We're not, we don't come to the Bible to find out what we want to find, right? We come to find out what the truth is. So let's do that this morning. Let's just see what God says. This isn't what Pastor Brian says or Pastor Jerome or anybody else. This is what God says. Okay. And before we get there, let me just set the stage a little bit. Um, our society has done a complete 180 in the last 30 to 40 years. I don't know if you realize this, but up until about 1973, um, the psychiatric professionals within America categorized homosexuality as a mental disorder. You can Google this and find it out. That's the way people perceived it back then. Now, I'm not giving my judgment on I'm just telling you what society thought in 1973. Well, here we are in 2018, and 83% of 18 to 29-year-olds say that homosexuality should be accepted by society. So there has been a, a tremendous reversal in our generation. This is unheard of for that big of a moral change to happen in any nation within that short of a period of time. We're, li we're truly living in a, a very, very unique age right now. No other, I, I well, I, I, I can't say this dogmatically, but I would hesitate to say that there's ever been an age that has seen so much moral change in such short amount of time going from one position to the opposite position and accepting it as normative. Um, another statistic, in 2001, only 35% of Americans supported same-sex marriage. 16 years later, 62%. Support it. That's in 16 years. That's not even a generation. That's how fast things are whipping up and the, the culture is changing. It's been incredible. And we are living right now, we're seeing unfolding before our eyes the very things we're reading about here in Romans chapter 1. Instead of rejoicing that some kind of civil rights victory has been won, we should be mourning. We should be on our faces mourning because God's wrath is upon our nation. Now, what does the Bible say about homosexuality? We're not going to go into the whole Bible. I'm just going to limit it here to Romans 1 and what Paul says about it in these two verses. And he says a lot about it, right, in these two verses. Number one, he says it's a degrading passion. That's the first thing he says about it. For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions for their, for their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. So this is a passion that doesn't elevate man or lift him up. It lowers him and degrades him and demeans him. Number two, Paul says it's unnatural in verse 26. They exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. Anybody really ought to know that it's unnatural. Yeah. Genesis chapter 1, verse 28, when God gave his commission, his mandate to Adam and Eve, he said, I want you to 
replenish the earth or fill the earth. And then in chapter 2, verse 24, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and shall cleave to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. God's design was not for a man and a man. They can't replenish the earth. They can't subdue the earth. They can't fill the earth. It's impossible for two men to do that or for two women to do that. God's design is one man, one woman, one lifetime. That is his ideal will. So it's unnatural. The third thing he says about it is it's indecent. Verse 27. In the same way also the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another. Men with men committing indecent acts. Indecent. I looked up that word indecent. It means um, dirty or filthy. It's similarly related to the word impure that we've already read about in verse uh, 25, I think. No, 24. So it has that this indecent act is an obscene act, a dirty act, a filthy act, something that is not right. People know that it's just not right. It's, it's indecent. And then another thing he tells us about it is that it, it is an error. He says in verse 27, men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. Now, do you understand what an error is? If you're playing baseball and you commit an error, you've messed up, right? You've done something wrong. Or if you're taking a test and you make an error on the test, you've answered the question wrongly. You know, God has a black and white standard of things that is right and wrong for many issues. And one of those issues is in the area of sexual relationships amongst people. And he says that heterosexual relationships, when they're within the confines of marriage, are right. And homosexual relationships are error or erroneous. They're, they're not right. And then the one other thing that he does say about it here in verse 27 is that those who commit homosexual acts receive in their own persons the due penalty of their error. They will receive a due penalty and they receive it in their own persons. Now, he doesn't get specific and tell us exactly what he means by that. And so I can only give you my best guess and you probably have your own. But I would think that all of the various illnesses that flow out of homosexual acts like venereal disease, AIDS, anal cancer, hepatitis C, there's a whole list of them, are what Paul's talking about. That God's judgment is actually, um, it, it comes attendant with physical circumstances. Hepatitis C is 10 times greater in the homosexual community than the heterosexual community. And anal cancer is 24 times greater. So there is a penalty that is, that is meted out. So this is just what Paul tells us in two verses of Romans 1 about this particular sexual, can we call it a deviation or perversion? Um, this is Paul's 
illustration of what it means when God gives over a people to degrading passions. They end up doing these kinds of acts. Thirdly, he says that God gives them over to a depraved mind. He tells us that in verse 28. Just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind. Now, depraved means corrupt. It means rejected. It can also be translated reprobate, a reprobate mind, where God has rejected that person. Their, their mind has become corrupted and they're rejected now. And they're now pursuing their own course away from God to do whatever occurs to them is right for them to do. Failed worship leads to a devolving, not an evolving, right? They failed in worship. They exchanged God for these other things. God gave them over, and they're spiraling down, down, down. Impurity, degrading passions, a depraved mind. And that depraved mind leads to Paul giving us a list of 21 sins. He says, let me give you an example of what happens when God gives a people over to a depraved mind. He says, they do those things which are not proper, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. And then he says, and although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. Look at verse 32 for a minute. What is true about a nation or a society that is abandoned by God? It says they know the ordinance of God that those who practice such things are worthy of death. Not only do they know God exists, but according to verse 32, they know that they're guilty, and they know there must be a day of reckoning for what they've done. And that's probably why we have so many psychiatrists and psychologists trying to help people today. Okay, so in verse 32, these people know in their hearts that those who practice the things Paul's just listed are worthy of death. Wow. That's actually interesting because that means that anybody you talk to on the face of the planet, though they may not acknowledge it or even realize it, down deep somewhere within them, there is this conscious, there is some kind of an awareness that there is a God and I'm guilty. And there's coming a day of reckoning. And you can use that to your advantage in witnessing because you can just proclaim boldly the things that they already know. There is a judgment to come, and God will judge. And guess what? There is a loving Savior provided, and you can have him if you only will. But not only does he say that, he says, they not only do the same, but they also give hearty approval to those who practice them. That's the bizarre part. They encourage it. And you know what is, to me, the greatest example of that today? Is the porn industry. Because the porn industry... Not only would they like to dabble in all of those kinds of things, but they want everybody else in the world to do it too. And they give hearty approval if you just go to their website or pay them money to look at these pictures. You know, hearty approval because, of course, they're making money off of it. 
The porn industry in America is like $8 billion a year. Last statistic I checked, it's like astronomical. It's, it's bigger than all of the major sporting, um, major league baseball, football, and basketball combined. I mean, it's huge. And, and they're doing their best to get everybody else to be hooked on the same thing. A people abandoned by God leads to their ultimate destruction. It leads to death. The ultimate destination of depravity is not just suicidal love affair with sin, but it is also bringing others with you to destruction. That's what he's saying in verse 32. So let's draw this down to a conclusion. You say, Brian, this is a pretty bleak message. <laughs> this is pretty, you're leaving us pretty down and depressed over all this. Is there any hope at all? Has God just given over America and that's it? There's nothing that can be done. Well, no, that's not true. But I would say the answer is not politics. The answer is not establishing new laws. The answer is not getting a different president into the White House. It's not getting a new Senate. It's not a political answer. The answer is God working through his gospel to save. Because just as God can and does give people over to judgment, like we saw here, God can and does give people over to grace. God is powerful enough to take people who are under this judgment and, uh, what does he call them in, in Ephesians 2-3? By nature, they're children of wrath, objects of wrath. He can deliver them out of the wrath and put them in this standing in grace. And he does it to his own glory. And we want to see him do that more and more and more here at the bridge. And we need to be people who are on fire to bring this gospel of the kingdom to people around us so that they're delivered out of the some of the things that we have just read about here in Romans 1 and brought into this gracious standing of justification and forgiveness with God. I say, what do I mean? Well, turn over to 1 Corinthians 6. Notice, notice this here. 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 through 11. This is the same author. He says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Such were some of you. He's writing to a church. You guys were all those things. You were homosexuals, drunkards, adulterers. That's your former life. <laughs> That's who you were. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of God. What's he saying? God rescued you. <laughs> God reached out and got you. He brought you out of that satanic kingdom and he delivered you into his own kingdom. And God can do that again. I pray and I hope that we are not so far gone that we're no, no longer going to see a move of God here in this nation. I pray that God would send a move of His Spirit, a revival here in America. The last time that we saw any kind of a, a revival was in the late 60s, early 70s with the Jesus movement. And in that movement, God saved tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of young people. Most of them were hippies. 
Um, Calvary Chapel was one of the big players back then, and Chuck Smith and Lonnie Frisbee and that whole thing. And it was an amazing thing. Amazing. But God could do that again. What's stopping God from doing that again? What if his people started to pray and pray and pray and say, God, we're, we, we, we don't want to stand for the way things are going. Turn it around. What if all the churches in America did that? There's a great chance that the Lord would respond and pour out his spirit and do a new work here in America. If he doesn't, we're slipping into hell. And what hope is there for our, our, our grandchildren and great-grandchildren here in this country to, to be born into this kind of a world and live where the morals... Nobody even knows what's right and wrong anymore, or at least they don't care. No one cares. But the church of Jesus Christ has to stand up for truth. We can't be like the frog in the kettle that just gets boiled by slowly changing with the advancing water temperature. We have to stand against the evil we see around us and proclaim truth. Even if people disagree with us, and they will, or persecute us, and they probably will, we we have to tell people truth. This is right and this is wrong. This is what God desires. This is what he does not want. So God, working through the gospel to save sinners, is the only answer that I can tell from this text. Now, Romans 1, the problem was that people are under the wrath of God. Which people? Those people who are unrighteous. Verse 18. What's the answer? Verse 17. God's gift of righteousness. There's the answer. They are unrighteous in themselves. Verse 17 says, For in the gospel the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. There's the answer. The gospel that can bring a righteousness by which they will be rescued from under the wrath of God. Another problem here is impurity. The answer, justification by faith through the blood of Christ. Once you trust in Jesus Christ, you are justified and you are no longer guilty before God. His sin, your sins have been removed. Impurity has been removed. You're clean and white and holy before God. The other problem here is degrading passions, right? What's the answer? The new birth. Because in the new birth, a new heart is given to the sinner, whereby he loves God and he loves Christ and he loves scripture and he loves righteousness. And so his passions now are being changed from degrading ones to elevating ones and noble ones and holy ones. What about the depraved mind? What's the answer to that? Romans 12, 2. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you might be, uh, they might prove what is perfect and holy and acceptable. Will of God. So all of the, all of the, things that God has given people over to, can be overcome through the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ and through the work of the Holy Spirit. So I want to submit to you that what we need to be about as a church is preaching this gospel, praying for lost people, and then living holy lives so they can see what it looks like to walk with God. That's it. I mean, it's so simple. You know, it's not all these... We don't need to have... um, Rock, rock concerts and light shows and we don't have to have drama teams. We need to preach the gospel, pray for lost people, and live holy lives. And if we can do those three people, three things, 
God will use us. He'll use us in the community we live in. He'll use our family in this community. He'll use yours in whatever community you live in. Let's commit ourselves. And and I'm feeling conviction this, this morning as I'm preaching this because I haven't been regularly preaching the gospel to lost people. And the Lord is convicting me. I need to be doing that. And our missional community, we need to get down and start doing it again. We've just kind of taken a break for a couple months. We need to be out there talking to people, either on people's doorsteps or on the streets or wherever. We need to find ways to interact with people that don't know Christ and point them to a Savior that can get them out of this morass. So committing to preach the gospel, committing to praying for lost people. Let's that be one of the things we do at our missional communities, thinking about people that we know that are lost, and let's pray for them together. And then let's live a life that's distinguishable from the rest of the world where people can sit up and take notice. Wow, why are they so different? They, they don't live like anybody else I know. They don't think like anybody else I know. In fact, it's attractive to me. It's, I, I like it. Let's see if we can live a life like that. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, forgive us for not shining more light into this dark world. And forgive us, Lord, for not being saltier to this decaying, corrupt culture. We are your church, Lord. We are the light. We are the salt. You've put us here, Lord, to shine for Christ, to give his light out, to retard corruption in this world. Lord, we pray for our nation this morning. We pray for our president. We pray, Lord, for the Senate, the House of Representatives. We pray, Lord, for the entire nation that is just following suit. I, I'm, I'm not sure where it has come from. It must, must be ultimately from Satan, but just down into this black morass. Lord, we, we pray for our country. Would, would you be so kind and gracious, Lord? to answer our prayers and begin to work in a large-scale way across this nation. We pray, Lord, that there would be more conversions. We pray that we would see them more even right here within our community, within Sacramento, but in every city across this land. We pray that your Holy Spirit would be doing a new work. And Lord, awaken us. Let us come awake and let us fight the good fight. We pray that, Lord, we would be busy doing your will. Stir us up, Lord. We all pray together in Jesus' name. Amen.